Avengers Infinity War. Oh, what a movie. What a movie. Yeah, there was uh, my first reaction to this movie when I walked out of the cinema. I thought of just a single word that could sum up the whole movie, and that was, it's bold. Bold, for sure. It's such an audacious kind of thing that they've done with this movie. So, Avengers Infinity War, what are we talking here? We're talking a really long time. The entire Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is that thing that all of your nerd friends talk about, is basically constructed. It was constructed to tell this story. It was constructed from the very beginning. We're talking, what, 10 years now? Yeah, it's been a decade in the making. 18 movies have all led to this one point where everything comes together into one movie. And, you know, of course, you've had the meme in the last few months where Avengers is the most ambitious crossover event in history. I really think that that's the the best description of what this movie aims to achieve. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Now, we're coming at this from slightly different perspectives. I did not want to see this movie. Yeah, I kind of dragged you to it. Yeah, for sure. I, d- I really, I resisted this movie, but we're also coming at a little little bit of different standpoints because you've seen all the movies. I think, what are we in? What did we decide we were in? Phase three? Yeah, so this is the conclusion of phase three, I think. I'm not too sure. I have no idea how Marvel this works nerds, anymore. Marvel nerds, please don't comment yeah we're not gonna get everything 100 percent correct because we're just sort of sitting around talking but we'll try and make sure uh things are as accurate as possible but yeah so this is the the conclusion of phase three i think in the cinematic universe so you know you have phase one which goes to like what avengers one yeah i think that's it so for all those pedantic fans out there i've pulled up the list of the phase movies so we can uh, run through them So, phase one goes from Iron Man, the first one, which came out in 2008, to the first Avengers movie in 2012. And then you've got phase two, which is a lot more sort of world building and individual movies, where it starts off with Iron Man 3, and then it ends with Ant-Man. Yeah, they they introduced a a lot of new characters. Yeah, it's it's sort of all this world building and adding in all like the the sidekicks like, you know, Falcon and... uh, I don't think many people are expecting that. I think most people are expecting the running cast of the, the standard, the stock standard Avengers to continue on into the continuation of the story. But they were introducing characters that are not popular characters. No, and that was one of the things in phase two that was really surprising. Yeah, we've got Black Panther. We've got... That's phase uh, three. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. I'm with you now. Okay, yeah, so cool. just looking at phase two, um, you've still got that situation where they made Guardians of the Galaxy and that was like a, a mini series of comics in like the 90s that yeah. no one had ever really heard of and they yeah, took a total not popular. Not popular at all. And now that's like a, a huge key part of the cinematic universe, which is crazy. Yeah. But um, then we get into phase three. It kicks off with Captain America Civil War and that sets the tone for the whole thing. Spoilers for the movie, Captain America. The Avengers split. They called it Captain America Civil War, but it was essentially Avengers Civil War. That's what it came down to. Yeah, a lot of people call it Avengers 2.5. And this phase three is a lot of really big budget movies that all sort of converge into infinity war so with infinity war we're going to be talking about it a lot in this podcast so we just want to give you ample time this is a big big spoiler warning we're going to talk about the whole movie yeah 
If you have not seen this movie yet, don't listen to this episode. Go out and see it for maximum enjoyment of this episode. Yeah, we don't want to uh, ruin anything for listeners who haven't heard it. I think that's enough time, enough of an adequate spoiler warning. So, we're going to jump into the movie, sort of just starting from the start and sort of working through it. Now, let's talk for a second a little bit about superhero fatigue. Yes, that's why you were reluctant to go to this movie. I think as big and audacious a plan as this was, it it was huge, obviously. This is 10 years in the making and we're probably not even halfway through the, the whole story. The thing is that with massive franchises that go on, you're looking at Lord of the Rings, you're looking at these long-lasting franchises that drew in huge crowds. This is the same thing. However, some have criticized Marvel and the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and they've criticized Disney for saying, maybe this was a bit too audacious a plan, because there is some serious, serious superhero fatigue setting in. Well, that's the thing. Like, I wanted to go into this movie with complete context surrounding it. So, this was the first movie I've ever seen where I've done what you could almost call required reading, where I went and watched a couple of the Marvel movies I hadn't seen and also, like, rewatched some of the other movies that I'd seen before. It's sort of a refresher before I went into it because there's so many details in these movies that I knew I just wasn't across them. And then there's the other part of this that's basically setting into the feeling of apathy, and almost bordering on viewership protest when when people are, like, not watching these movies. And the thing is, all these movies do really, really well. And they're all good movies. But for some reason, just being a good movie hasn't been enough for a lot of them to stand. Typically speaking, it's like, oh, have you seen the new Ant-Man movie? And you would say no. And they'd be like, yeah, but it's good. Why don't you go see it? It's good. It's like, I know it's good. I just don't want to go see it. Well, that's the thing. It's the exact same kind of superhero movie plot, but with different characters. For sure. Yeah, it's very formulaic and, you know, there's there's a lot of things that, that are common across them. And in a lot of the movies, the stakes aren't really that high either. Yeah. Like, you know that the hero's going to prevail at the end of the movie. You know that Iron Man's going to defeat Obadiah Stane or Extremis or whoever he's fighting this time around. Right. And then, to their credit, what you're looking at there is character development. So, even though the stakes aren't that high, you're spending time with the characters to learn a bit about them, to learn what motivates them, so that when they eventually form this ensemble cast in the Avengers movies, you're you're invested in the characters. The stakes are a bit higher in the Avengers movies, for sure. So, that, that can be equally used as a criticism as well as to their credit, for sure. Yeah, well, with Infinity War, you know, the movie just jumps straight into the action with the opening scene. So, tell me about it. Like, which of the movies did you see coming into the movie? I hadn't seen Spider-Man Homecoming and I hadn't seen Thor Ragnarok because last year I was feeling very superhero fatigued. There were so many Marvel movies that I was like, I just can't keep up with them. I might watch them later on at home, but I'm not interested in going to the cinemas and paying $20 to see every single one of these movies because, you know, they're quite similar. And so, those were the two that I hadn't seen before. But I rewatched, like, the first Iron Man movie. I rewatched the second Iron Man movie. I watched The Avengers, Avengers Age of Ultron. And I wanted to sort of get a bit of the background behind me before I kicked off with this movie. I, on the other hand, full disclosure, (laughs) I hadn't seen 
most of them. I haven't seen, to this day, I still haven't seen Captain America 1, <laughs> for example. I have seen, in this phase, leading up to this phase of Avengers, I've seen Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which is part of this phase, and I've seen Spider-Man, because I love Spider-Man. Spider-Man is like my favorite superhero. So I definitely wanted to see those two. What about um, Doctor Strange? I didn't see Doctor Strange. Why not? It's such a good movie. I haven't seen Doctor Strange. I made it about halfway through Civil War. I got to the part where they had their big fight on the aeroplane field. And I got to see my beloved Tom Holland. And then I then I turned it off because I couldn't, I couldn't make it through the rest. It was just boring me. Oh, yeah. It was kind of boring just because the stakes weren't that high. You know, you had Earth's mightiest heroes battling each other on the tarmac of some German airport. And, and yet they did far better than Batman v Superman. Yeah, well, that's that's a movie I haven't seen. I haven't seen a lot of superhero movies. I've seen all of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but that's about it as far as superhero movies. I sort of picked one franchise that I was going to be across everything. And then DC, not so much. I've seen most of them, but not Batman vs Superman. They're definitely taking a back row seat to the MCU because their their films just aren't good. Oh, for sure. And like even their attempts to build like a, an Avengers style thing with the Justice League really fell flat. Yeah, it, it was an okay movie. Like I enjoyed it, but it's not on the level of the Avengers because they seem to be panicking and trying to get like an ensemble cast in as soon as they can without a cohesive plan. Yeah. Whereas with the Avengers... You have all these really great, well-done movies that provide all the character backstory. You also have the uh, studios to thank for that. I think uh, Disney has done very, very well with the MCU, whereas Warner Brothers, on the other hand, has been plagued with infighting. They've been changing hands with directors. It's been a, it's been a bit of a mess. And then with the movies themselves are very highly reliant on CGI. I think there's a very intense... CGI components of the movies and a lot of people find that straining on the eyes. Somebody did a study on to how many of the shots in Justice League were CG. There was like zero scenes that didn't have some form of CG in them, which I think is to the MCU's benefit. They use that to a lesser degree where it's not so harmful on the eyes and it doesn't hurt you so much. Yeah, and also like the MCU is a real creative juggernaut. You know, this is sort of an unstoppable freight train. Even when they're having personnel issues, when, you know, they're having trouble with a director and having creative differences, they're like, no, we have to get this done. We're sticking to a timeline. We've got like the next 10 years of movies mapped out. If you're not playing ball with us, then you're out and we'll get someone in who can fulfill your part of this universe. In the same way that you're looking at like a construction site where everybody's got their job and everybody's got to do their job for the overall building of like the house or whatever. Like it's got to be this collaborative effort between lots of parties to make something special. Yeah, so like the prime example is Ant-Man. That was originally going to be directed by Edgar Wright, who's an absolutely incredible director. I love his movies. So, I was really looking forward to Ant-Man, but he was having some real issues with Marvel's management of the things and his creative freedom because he has a very distinctive style. And it got to the point where he just left the project. And so, Marvel said, oh, we've already got a release date for this. We're just going to get another director in and he's going to do the work that 
Edgar Wright's they not. They shoehorned him in and they yeah. said, take over this project. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, like, the movie was okay. I don't have much of an issue with it. Like, it was, it was an interesting superhero movie. Can't really say much beyond that because I haven't seen it since it was out in cinemas. Yeah, no, no flaws to speak of. Yeah. Nothing that makes it, like, detrimental to the story or anything like that. Yeah. But anyway, let's get back to Infinity War because I'm really interested to see how you handled the opening scene of this movie because Infinity War starts off with all of Asgard on a spaceship in front of Thanos' capital ship. This is where... Yeah, they've been boarded. Yeah, so Thor Ragnarok ends with, you know, Asgard's being destroyed by Hela, which is Thor's estranged sister, and they're all escaping as refugees on this spaceship. So when you watch Thor Ragnarok, you get all of the context for this opening scene, but you've never seen Thor Ragnarok. I did read the the synopses of the plots and things like that. They say you don't really need to watch the lead-up films, but I think you'll definitely enjoy the film more if you do watch the lead-up films. That open worked well for me. I didn't find any sort of jarring or anything like that. So you sort of had a good understanding of what was going on and all the characters? Yeah, but it's not it's not even hard to piece it together. I'm pretty sure that the Tesseract was a was a point in the in the first movie yeah the first avengers thor and loki go and take it away and hide right. it in asgard so we've got the macguffin and the bad guys here and he and he wants the macguffin you know what i mean like it's 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 not hard to piece together and you can say yeah i haven't necessarily watched the previous films to get acquainted or see thor's character growth and i haven't seen loki's character growth or i haven't seen why they're on the ship or anything like that but i can still see okay bad guy wants this so the pieces are there and it it wasn't hard to put them together yeah so you weren't lost when you saw that thor had this killer new haircut no because they flogged that in every trailer for ragnarok oh that's that's the worst part about these trailers you know i I just want to point out the infinity war trailer kind of spoiled black panther yeah because the Infinity War trailer literally played as the pre-roll for Black Panther. Instead. That is so unbelievable to right. me. And that's that's fine. You know, they're promoting another Avengers movie. It's time to say, hey, there's another movie that we're going to show. But there were several characters in the Infinity War trailer that were in Black Panther. Black Panther had all these scenes where, like, you know, the Black Panther... Was, was about to be killed, or he was killed, or, you know, there was all this drama surrounding whether or not he was going to survive. Right, because he was introduced in Civil War. It's yeah. not as though the movie Black Panther was his character introduction, not at all. He had a character introduction already. No, so we know he's in it already, but in Black Panther, there's all these scenes where you don't know if he's going to survive, but then you think back to the, the pre-roll ads for the movie, you see... Black Panther running into this battle in Infinity War, which is presumably after the events of Black Panther. And you're like, oh, so he's not going to die after all. Takes the punch out of it. Yeah, there's there's no drama involved with whether he's going to survive or not. So there we struck onto a pretty interesting point because is the pacing that these movies are coming out detrimental to the story overall? Well, to a certain extent. I mean, you have all these moving parts and you've got to keep every little bit inching forward to this goal. But I think in some ways it does affect the story. But at the same time, I guess it it ruins some of the parts of it. But, 
you know, when I, I think back to watching Black Panther, I think, okay, so he's going to survive this. How is he going to survive it? So there's still an element of uncertainty there. You don't know the full outcome. You know the ultimate spoiler that, yes, Black Panther will survive this movie no matter what he gets into. I think another point to sort of, I want kind of want your opinion on it is that when these movies are being pumped out at such a high rate, it can be sort of alienating to your average viewer because your average viewer doesn't watch that many movies per year. The amount of movies that these guys are putting out the average viewer wouldn't even watch that many movies in their in their year. The going to the theater is becoming a, a far more rare occurrence than it used to be. It's not as big as it used to be. So there's the kind of thing where people don't necessarily want each of their 10 times that they go to the movies to be for superhero movies, whether that be, of course, MCU or combination of MCU with the DC universe or whatever. There's a lot of movies that people might be interested in watching, but the pace that they come out might be too frequent. So I think that there's an alienation of that audience as well as pandering to the really intense film buffs and the really intense comic book nerds and the people who have literally... They're counting down the days, you know, they're like, oh man, we've got, and then they, they release the schedule on the Marvel website, you know, this movie's coming out, dropping this date, this movie's dropping this date, this movie's dropping this date, and then their trailers are released onto YouTube and then reach the top of the trending page. And it's like, it has the feel of pandering, even though it may not be, but it has that feel of all of these people who are really intense into cinema are going to watch this movie and they're going to be watching six of them in a year. Because the second you walk out of any Marvel movie, you're talking about the next three that are coming out this year. Yeah, like we were after Infinity War. It's really not the kind of cinema experience that a lot of people like. Yeah, I think what they're trying to do with this cinematic universe is achieve as broad appeal as they possibly can. On one hand, you've got like the the casual film goer where, you know, they'll watch a couple of movies a year at the cinemas and Marvel knows that, so they put all their eggs into one basket. So, you know, last year it was more like Doctor Strange and Spider-Man. This year it was Black Panther and Infinity War. They've clearly got movies where they're they're a bigger deal than others, and they're the ones that Marvel's sort of banking on more people seeing. But at the same time... You know, Marvel's got a lot of long-time comic book fans that want to see all of their heroes on the screen. You know, they want to see their specific hero playing their role. And so they've got to, they've got to appeal to all of that. I've got a sort of thought on the, the comic book fan idea that sort of interested me when I heard somebody else talking about this on another podcast. And they were saying basically that the idea that they're pleasing the comic book fan kind of doesn't make sense anymore these days. Because the comic book fan, even though it's a badge of honor that a lot of people wear, it's the kind of thing where it's a pop culture thing and people say, oh yeah, this is happens in the comic books and this storyline happens in the comic books. Comic books have never really been that big in society, but the characters that they've produced have so thoroughly ingrained themselves into our pop culture that it's become an overarching piece of our entire society, entire Western society and beyond. You look at Superman, he's synonymous with the United States. He's like the the all-American hero. He's been around since the Second First World War, whatever it was. And these characters have migrated out of the comic books for 
arguably longer than they've been in the comic books. They were being used as toys. They were being used on TV shows. They were being used in animated films. They were being used in live action films. People's careers were lived and died by superhero films. And I think that transcension of these characters, I think, is being hijacked by the so-called comic book fan. And that, I think, is a controversial opinion to have. Because when I first listened to this on somebody else that I listened to, was was expressing this idea, it was very unpopular. It was sort of the highbrow sort of comic book fan will will preach and, and teach about their beloved characters and their story arcs and how dare anybody else meddle with their characters. Meanwhile, do they really own them? You know what I mean? Like, there's a very big semblance of other media beyond the comic books that has diffused into the rest of our popular culture. And for many people, when they think of Superman, they don't think of the comic book character. They think of Superman. They think of him. They believe in his ideals and they know immediately what is embodied in Superman. And I think that that's quite interesting to see the way it's developed in that way. Because the diehard fans are the ones that are like, oh yeah, I've been reading the comic books since I was so young. I don't think I've ever met anybody who reads the comic books. Like legitimately pulled one out in front of me and said... Here, check this out. Look at my collection. You know, it's it's such a bizarre concept to me. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to these heroes that we know and that are in like the, the public zeitgeist, the ones that have had film adaptations, you know, in the past 50 years or so. You know, you've got the original Christopher Reeve Superman and you've got all of these iconic superheroes that were adapted into films earlier on and they're, they're the ones that have the widespread public appeal. But it goes back to adapting a creative work from one media to another. Yeah. You know, like I've got friends and colleagues who read the comic books. Yeah. You know, one of my colleagues is an avid Spider-Man fan. Like, he collects some of the original comic books and all this sort of stuff. And so, I was really interested to see what he thought about Spider-Man Homecoming when it came out. And he hated it. (laughs) Because it didn't live up to his, you know, ideal vision of what Spider-Man is. He was like, no, he had a drone and a parachute and it wasn't like the, the comic books I read when I was a kid. But... You find that everywhere. You take a book and make it into a movie and you have the people that read the book and they say, oh, no, the the book was better. The characters were more fleshed out. It's one of those things that happens when you adapt a creative work. I think also people tend to forget that what the comic books were. The comic books weren't one cohesive structure like a novel. No, there's all these different facets and there's all these different versions of the hero. Like you have- Generations. Yeah, you know, you have- a Superman story arc where instead of his spaceship landing in Kansas, he lands in the Soviet Union and he he becomes like this, you know, Russian superhero. Yeah. There's all these different ideas of what they could be in the comic books. Yeah. And the films have to go, okay, how can we not only achieve the vision, the creative vision that we want to have, how can we both appeal to the comic book nerds and also the wider public? Right. And so, there's this massive balancing act and they seem to get most of it right across all of it, but they don't get every single part of it right. Right. I think they've probably done it better than anyone. Oh, for sure. I just think that they put a little too much money into this for a return on investment where it wasn't necessarily just a passion project. 
it was saying, yeah, we respect and we love these characters. However, the conglomeration of, of the Marvel Cinematic Universe was, in essence, a giant cash grab. They're looking at recognizable characters. Why, why not write a new superhero, you know? Because nobody's going to care about it, obviously. So, you're taking- you're playing into nostalgia over generations. However, so that criticism standing, they did it the best. They yeah. certainly did it the best and they made some of the most successful movies of all time. So, I think that that's worth their credit. Yeah. And part of that, all these superheroes being a cash cow, it means that the stakes in these movies are pretty low. But obviously, if you've seen Infinity War, and if you haven't, go watch it. We're going to spoil it all in this podcast. We come into this movie with 18 movies with very low stakes. You know, there's been one or two minor heroes killed across those movies. But there really hasn't been any kind of devastation. And so, getting back to Infinity War, like... The opening scene with the Asgard spaceship really established that this movie was not going to pull any punches, that the stakes were massively high. Yeah. Like, you have Heimdall being killed, you have Thor being beaten up, you have the Hulk being beaten up by Thanos, which was insane. You've got Loki giving up the Tesseract to try and save his people, and he gets killed anyway. Or does he? But that's a whole other point. So... Do you think when they start off a movie like this, it really shows that they're going to put all of the stakes that the other movies have sort of neglected into one basket? Yeah, I think so. I I think they do generally listen to criticism from their fans. One of the criticisms was that, you know, your, your films don't have any stakes and they are kind of fluffy marshmallow. But that opening definitely said it for me. It definitely said that, you know, these the stakes are higher in this film. Although, I just would like to touch on something. The second we walked into the film, as Patrick and I met up before we went into the movie, had a couple of drinks, sat down and discussed what we thought about the film and what we thought was going to happen. And the first question he asked me is, how many characters are going to die and who are they going to be? Yeah, I knew that there was going to be someone that will die in this movie. At least one hero, because it was a massive spectacle. So, I thought, okay, there's going to be at least one character die, maybe multiple so, we're going to put down our top five characters that are going to die. See, now, I've since learned that this was a talking point among a lot of people. I've watched a lot of reviews of this film and a lot of people talking about the dying. It had not even occurred to me that characters are going to die till you brought it up to me. Yeah. So, is is that something that's sort of been drilled into you by, like, the, the previous movies where all the characters survive? No, I don't think it was drilled into me from the previous movies. It was just something that I had so little interest in it. It was something that I was like, okay, people are obviously expecting this. I wonder why they're expecting this and why I haven't cottoned onto it or I haven't seen the hints or whatever. But yeah, I certainly didn't think that there would be any character deaths at all. Yeah, it's interesting. Just looking back on sort of what we predicted, you predicted a lot more of the the sidekick characters were going to die. Whereas I put in a couple of like the, the big names, the big like top superheroes hard hitters do you want to go through our predictions for what we had let's do it we'll start with yours james the first character you thought was going to die was scarlet witch yeah i thought she was done she was too much of a side character i thought that she you know she's got a little bit of character development and she sort of she went from being very sokovian Hmm. in one film to very american in the next (laughs) film and then she had some sort of love arc with vision 
And I thought that would be a good character to kill. Like, it, it would have a little bit of a hard hit as well as, like, not being too devastating because she's, she hasn't been there since the beginning. Interesting. And uh, your first pick was Spider-Man. Yeah, Spider-Man. Yeah, I thought the stakes are going to be high in this movie and that means that there's got to be one big death that they're going to sort of rally around. You said to me before we went in, you said that his father-son relationship with Tony Stark would have been a huge attractive target to hit for his death. And I said to you, no ways are they going to kill Spider-Man. No ways. That was my arrogant attitude. Well, that's the trouble. Like, they've spent so long negotiating the rights for Spider-Man between Sony and Marvel. On top of, they've just put out a massive hit Spider-Man movie, like the third reboot we've seen this century. It was an amazingly done movie. It's my favorite Spider-Man adaptation you got to love the the title, Homecoming. Like, <laughs> we're bringing Spider-Man home, back to Marvel where he belongs. But, I mean, it goes back to, and this doesn't really occur to us in Australia because it's a very American thing, but, you know, the homecoming dance and that sort of thing with high school because that's really underplayed in, like, the other movies. Like, you know, they have actors that are, like, in their 20s playing a, a Spider-Man that should be in high school. Yeah. Whereas Tom Holland is young, he looks young, and he is in high school, and that's like a central part of the storyline. He is the perfect Spider-Man, for sure. And that's why he had to die. That's why he had to die. Because there there had to be someone that was going to die that was a big name. Who did you have next? So, my second choice was Vision. He was totally inconsequential to me. I found he had no semblance in the story, and I also had the feeling that he was kind of a silly antithesis to Ultron in the last film. I thought that they kind of... I was like, how'd you come up with that? Did somebody throw you in a room and you came out with that story in half an hour? You know? Obviously, Vision is a real character in the Marvel universe. He's a re- He is a real character. Yeah, but he's a literal designed-by-committee character. You know, he's got a bit of Thor, he's got a bit of Ultron, a bit of Jarvis, an Infinity Stone, Tony Stark. It's all come together in this one... Wacky little bloke. Yeah. And I, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't care about Vision less. I love the actor. I think he's, he portrayed him very well, but I think the character himself was too inconsequential to me to matter at all. Did the big target on his forehead make any uh, <laughs> impact? target? Yeah. Hey, I need an infinity stone. Look who's got an infinity stone strapped to their forehead. Yeah, well, that's why Vision was on my list. He was, like, my third most likely person to die just because of that target, not necessarily because of the character himself. And he became more important in this film, for sure. There was, as we'll get into discussing, there was a, a an effort to preserve him and preserve his life being made in the film. That sort of pulled on the heartstrings a little bit. Mm. But, yeah, he, he became more important in this film, for sure. Yeah. The second most likely person I thought was going to die was Hawkeye. And, oh, how wrong was I there? Yeah, Hawkeye was not in this film, everyone. Yeah, he was just... You you didn't see him at all, and who knows, maybe he did die towards the end. We don't know yet. Yeah, that'll be something for us to find out. Yeah, but yeah, he wasn't even in the movie. He was mentioned once, but that's it. Who was next on your list? Bucky. So, I thought that would be a good character to kill for Captain America's sake, because he did have a, a fairly good character development for Steve Rogers. Sort of this childhood friend that 
he ends up being still alive and he's and he comes out again and i think it's winter soldier he comes out again his yep. reappearance he's got that really kick-ass arm yeah that's the one he's got the vibranium arm and it, it's sort of a devastating pull and then obviously that sort of sets off the catalyst as well a little bit for civil war i know i didn't make it through civil war but i know that he was a consequential character in that film i thought it would be a very good thing to have the one thing that captain america has tying him to his old life was bucky and I thought that would be a good character death. Yeah, it would have been. Next up, I had Iron Man. I think that Iron Man's character, at least from the outside before Infinity War, his character has made like a full circle. So, you know, we started off with him in the first Iron Man. He was, you know, this military magnate. He was selling all these weapons to the US Army in Afghanistan. You know, he was this playboy philanthropist guy. And then, you know, he gets attacked and he becomes this hero and he becomes this really magnanimous person. And then in Avengers, he's completely changed and he's traumatized because of he's actually gone to war and he's seen that and he's seen what's coming. Was it Iron Man 3 that he was traumatized and he was showing PTSD? Yeah, he had like vague sort of anxiety and PTSD and all of that. And that was a key part of the movie. Yeah, it was that that was a fantastic character arc for him for sure. It's good to humanize these characters considering how arrogant Iron Man is and how Tony Stark is like this big sort of the swaggering cocky self-assured guy and he he for sure like changed a lot in that movie post Avengers 1. Yeah, and like after that he's he's become, you know, he's gone full circle. He's become this war machine once again he's you know he's seen what's out there he knows that earth needs to prepare militarily and he needs to defend earth when the next threat comes along so he goes back to this kind of warfare kind of mindset so i feel like they've done a really good full circle he's been a key part of the cinematic universe his time's done. I'm sure Robert Downey Jr. is a bit tired of like running around in a really cumbersome metal suit all the time. Yeah, I gave you points for that because at the end of the day, how valuable a character he is doesn't really matter. It's got to do with the fact that Robert Downey Jr. is getting to that point where he's like Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean. Like He's played this one character for so long. He's become known for it. He's become synonymous with it for to a large extent. And I think that probably would have made him a bit eager to get out of the franchise. Yeah, and that's probably why he's negotiating such a high wage because he knows he's worth it, but also he's probably sick of it, but the money's like really kind of helping that. But yeah, uh, who was your next person on the list? So my next person was Falcon which is the black dude who flies around. I can't remember when his character was introduced. I think it was the second Captain America movie where he was just like this this guy that Captain America ran into while he was running. And he was yeah. like, you seem like a cool guy. Here, yeah. have some prototype top secret military equipment and, right. you know, you can become my sidekick. Yeah, and like what made him qualified to do that as well? Like, oh, he, we got like this amazing weapons technology. Hey, random guy. Take it, you know, like what makes him qualified? Is he like a pilot? Well, he was a test pilot. He had some credentials there, but at the same time, Captain America like literally ran into him on the street. Right. Yeah. It was a bit far-fetched. Yeah. I don't know. He did an all right job. He was like the cheapest Avenger they could shoehorn into Ant-Man, which yeah. um, really like 
added some depth to that movie. Yeah. But yeah, he wasn't a very standout character. He was he, again just very inconsequential. 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 He, uh, he, yeah, he was a he was a damp squid. <laughs> he just couldn't do anything. Yeah. The last person on my list was Bucky. I had him on the list for pretty similar reasons to you. I thought that. Yeah, he's going to be a major driving force for Captain America. And it's it's also going to be not only symbolic to Captain America of like this last thing tying him to his past, but it's like the last sort of thing tying the whole universe to that past. Yeah, true. Because it all starts there. Yeah. yeah. Although we did get a, a brief cameo of Red Skull in the movie. Oh, that was so weird. Yeah, that was odd, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, it was so unexpected, but he was like the perfect character to be guarding the Soul Stone. Way better than that really awful Winter Soldier cameo of the Doctor. Was it the... Yeah, he was like the Doctor that made the super serum. And he was put into the computer. Yeah. And he was the bad guy in the end. And it was like, oh... Hydra lives mm. because, and I was like, oh, that is so dumb. I don't know. I really liked that movie for the undertones of like mass surveillance and all that, but yeah, it was little- I, the movie was good. Don't get me wrong. The, the movie was good for sure, but they wanted to tie everything back to Hydra. And I was like, wow, they're making Hydra way more important than I thought they were. Yeah. The, that link was very tenuous, but it seemed to work well until the point where like, he was, it was literally on just like a couple of hundred tape drives. Yeah. Like we can't even get artificial life working like in 2018, let alone, you know, like the 60s and 70s. It was pretty contrived. The Red Skull's appearance in Infinity War was a little bit more palatable. Yeah. It, it was much more powerful as well because he was a very powerful enemy. Yeah. yeah. So my last character was Hawkeye. So we agree on that one. I think he'd gone through some decent-ish development as well he sort of went from this like crazy talented archer who was getting his mind controlled and (laughs) he had some awesome one-liners about you know fighting aliens with a bow and arrow and how silly that is and he you know he was he was a cool little everyman he was natasha's sort of male equivalent where they were like hey you don't have to have superpowers to be cool you don't have to have all the great technology you can just be like an archer it's cool you know yeah but that also made him like the most expendable of the original avengers for sure yeah he was an interesting character he in which was was it the second film where he was like i want out i want to go you know retire and stuff yeah it was age of ultron where he was like you know one last heist movie and then i'm done yeah and then we meet his family and we're like whoa yeah yeah, I, I mean, he had a great sort of character development and he, he would have been a sort of good person to have his story end in this movie. But yeah. as we mentioned, he wasn't even in it. Yeah, wasn't even in it. I think he was referenced once, like you said, and that was it. Yeah. So I had some concerns for you not having seen a lot of the movies that you might be a little bit lost. But as you've said, you sort of had a lot of context from just the history of these characters. But... On top of that, there were several one-liners in the movie where they they literally summarized several of the movies. You know, you had Tony Stark talking about he's not on speaking terms with Captain America and summarized the whole plotline of Civil War in that conversation. You had Age of Ultron and Thor Ragnarok sort of summarized in these one-liners. Yeah. There were these very poignant discussions between the characters where they were saying, you know, 
this happened. And you're like, oh, cool. I had no idea Bucky Barnes was in Wakanda. And I was like, oh, I guess he's there. That makes sense. Yeah, he was like in a post credit scene of Black Panther. And that's where they establish he's in Wakanda. You're like, okay, cool. Yeah, he, he's there for some reason. But that's the thing, like, this movie has too many superheroes. And because of that, like, so many of them haven't met. So many of them don't know each other's backstory. So they they literally have to have these dialogues of saying, this has happened. It was a very good way of working in that exposition. But at the same time, it became a bit of a hindrance in a lot of the scenes. I think it was a hindrance for sure, but they were kind of self-aware. Mm. One, of the, one of my favorite lines of the whole film was... Spider-Man catching all these characters on his web when they were all flying through the air. And he's like, got you, lady. Got you, guy. Sorry, I don't remember your names. Like, <laughs> it was the most perfect thing. And I was like, okay, at least they're self-aware. There's a lot of those kind of lines. And there's also these, like, scenes where characters are meeting each other for the first time. You've got Thor meeting the Guardians of the Galaxy. And he's saying, oh, you speak Groot? And he's like, yeah, I speak Groot. It was an elective on my home planet. <laughs> and, yeah, it was, it was kind of silly. It was It was a hindrance for sure. But at least they got away with it by shoehorning in some humor there. Luckily, humor is what Marvel does well. So they can be like, you know, oh, I'm shooting I'm shooting aliens with a bow and arrow. None of this makes sense. <laughs> so they're like, okay, we get it. It's a bit weird. But guys, it's just a superhero movie. Relax. Yeah. And it works well narratively. Like when you have Iron Man and the Guardians of the Galaxy on Thanos's home planet, and the Guardians have never seen Iron Man or Spider-Man or Doctor Strange before. So, they don't know whether these people are a threat or not. So, they start attacking each other. Yeah. And that, that was really well done where, like, they, they finally understand, oh, you're from Missouri. Yeah. That's America. No, no, no. He's like, Earth. He's like, I'm from Earth. He's like, oh, I'm from Missouri. He's like, that's Earth, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very good line. Yeah. The basic plot of the film is... Thanos, played by the very charismatic actor. Josh Brolin. Yeah, he's phenomenal and did very well. He's chasing down Infinity Stones. I watched a lot of reviews of this film, people talking about it, like, uh, sorry, not reviews, but like pre preambles, like they were saying prediction videos and things like that. After the fact. So I watched these all after the fact. I didn't watch any going into it. But after I'd watched the film, I watched some of these prediction videos and people saying, oh, he's going to get like three Infinity Stones. We're going to have to wait for the next one until he gets the rest. And so people had ideas that they knew he was going to go for the Infinity Stones. It kind of makes sense. He's got this gauntlet that he wears on his arm and he was going to get the Infinity Stones to go into them. So he gets the Tesseract Stone. And then the basic tenant of the rest of the film is that he is chasing down the rest of the Infinity Stones. Yeah, but... The trouble is that there was so much to pack into this movie that they literally had to leave one of the Infinity Stones just off camera. So, he gets the Tesseract at the beginning of the movie. That's his second stone. Yeah, but he got the first one at the end of Guardians. Yeah, he got... There's a scene, there's a post credit scene where he gets the purple stone. Oh, I've totally forgotten about that. Because, like... They mention it in the movie. They were like, oh, he destroyed Xandar. And I was like, when did this happen? Did they just leave an entire planet's destruction off camera? It was a post credit scene. Oh, right. There's a scene with him floating on his fancy rock. Oh, there's too many things to keep track of. I know, it's ridiculous. But yeah, so like he's got two and then he goes on to get, well, the other four. So what was the third stone he got? I can't even remember. 
he he sort of chases down the one that he had to get that only Gamora knew where it was. So that's a part of the film where he's led by Gamora to go get the stone. Yeah. And I kind of want to talk a little bit about Thanos before we go more into the movie. Yeah, because this this movie was a Thanos movie. This was 100% a Thanos movie. Thanos was the main character in this film, which makes sense. They've got him right at the top of the poster. He's the biggest character. He was relatable. He was... The CG was fantastic. The motion capture was really, really good. Phenomenal character development. Really, really made him identifiable and relatable. Yeah, he was hell-bent on a mission for a very specific reason. You know, he saw his planet get destroyed by overpopulation... And he was like, people, you know, humanity and all that has become too much in the universe. We need to scale things back. And I like the way they brought in the Destroyer of Worlds storyline. Because the Marvel has tried to do this before with Fox. They tried this with the Silver Surfer. Mm. And the Silver Surfer was coming to Earth and leading Thanos. But they didn't call it Thanos. They called it the the Destroyer of the Worlds. And in that movie, he was a big cloud. (laughs) It was literally a big cloud, and that's back in the days when Marvel movies took a little bit more liberties with their films. A bit too abstract. It was a little bit too abstract. Very comic book movie pandering. Yeah. So, Thanos was done right in this film, and they explained that, you know, he, he understands the science of overpopulation, and he understands that people are competing for resources, and that can lead to war and destruction and famine. And he wants to kill 50% of the universe. Or the galaxy or where, wherever it was. The entire universe. Yeah. yeah, it was crazy. Although, was it the universe? Because Nebula very clearly stated the galaxy. She said that they were going to destroy 50% of the galaxy. Maybe it was the galaxy. Which makes sense of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Ah, because yeah. that, that sort of ties in. Very saying on brand there. Yeah. But then again, it might as well be the whole universe. Galaxies are massive. So, the point of this character's motivation, you know, he's just a bad guy. He wants to kill people. Ah, oh, but he's got like a real reason for it. And then we get our first flashback scene of, of Thanos. Yeah, he's he's seen this, you know, his society get killed. And he goes and adopts Gamora from this planet he's killing. And he makes her look away as half the people are killed and mm. kidnaps her and takes her away and adopts her as his own. And that's the thing that most, like, pretty much all these comic book movies don't do is that they don't show, like, the the softer side of big bad evil guy. They don't show, like, his family life or any of the minutiae that humanizes the the character. Marvel movies have always had weak villains. This is not a weak villain. This is the best villain they've had, and this is probably one of the best villains in superhero genres in general. He's a very well-done character. He's believable, and that first flashback made you go, oh, this is some interesting thing. It, it, it doesn't just give you a little bit of backstory about him, but it gives you a backstory into his relationship with Gamora, where he said, I'm going to take you, I'm going to take care of you, you've got Spunk it. I like you. It was very interesting, the way that that fl- first flashback happened. Yeah, and it intertwines extremely well into when he's getting the Soul Stone, because you see that this, this character loves Gamora. He cares for Gamora. Because she's his adopted daughter. And that's the last thing that he needs to sacrifice in order to gain the soul stone. Where does he get the reality stone from? He gets it from nowhere. Like the place called nowhere. 
That's right. And that's when he does the fake out with... Yeah, he he kills, in quotation marks, Mantis and Drax. Right, when he slices them up with reality. Yeah, it. Yeah. I thought they actually died at that point. I was like, oh, okay, they've, they've killed some more characters. But no, they like morph back together because it's the reality stone. So, every stone he gets, there was a bit of character development. So, if we go to the reality stone, because I think that's the, pretty much the next one he gets, right? That's the third one. Yeah. Right. So, he's got two. He's got the purple stone and the blue stone from the Tesseract. Yeah. Then he's moving on to get the red stone. The reality stone. So, yeah, the, the reality stone he obtains by sort of... He sort of bends reality in nowhere because... He already had the reality stone then. Did he? I don't know. This is the problem with the with the plot then. Uh, because he yeah. made... He did a fake out when they walked in. The whole thing was an illusion hmm. that they were seeing. Because they, they come out and they're like talking to the character. And then Gamora kills Thanos. She stabs him. But the whole thing was an illusion. Oh, so, he must yeah. have had the reality stone already. He must have taken it from the collector and was doing right. a fake out. Okay. So, he probably took it from the collector and drew... The Guardians into a trap, so he draws Star Lord and the rest of the characters, minus Groot and the Rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> he he draws them into a trap, and she sort of has these flashback moments where she's remembering everything, and she kills Thanos, and Thanos collapses to the ground, and the Collector applauds, and then you realize afterwards that everything was just an illusion, and that he's obtained the Reality Stone. And then we get a really powerful scene between Star-Lord and Gamora. It was sort of shrouded in this humor of, you know, I told you to go left. And then she says, kill me. And he pulls the trigger. And it was a very intense moment. They just said, I love you to each other. These are characters that everyone's like, when are they going to get together? You know, we've been through two movies already and they haven't gotten together yet. You know, very good story arcs there with Star-Lord and Gamora saying that they love each other. And he pulls the trigger to kill Gamora to try and spare her knowledge of where the next stone is. And that kind of got to me a little bit. That was the sort of first emotional punch. And then out of the gun comes Bubbles. <laughs> and you realize that the reality stone is, is really powerful and has the ability to change everything around, around him. So he captures Gamora and he goes in search of the, the fourth stone. And that's the first point in this movie that we see like the the main underlying theme of this and that is sacrificing something huge for what you love because you know star lord and gamora love each other and gamora said to star lord before they went into nowhere if thanos captures me kill me and he wasn't sure if he could do it until that point where he had a gun to gamora's chest and you know obviously it was a fake out however you, you see the lengths that people are having to go to to prevent Thanos from achieving his goal. And even with Thanos's goals, you see this. You know, you have Thanos having to sacrifice Gamora to get one of the stones. Let's, let's not jump ahead of ourselves. So, we still have a little bit of Gamora story to cover. Yep. Upon capturing Gamora, he takes her to the ship and he tortures Nebula in front of her. Yeah, Nebula's Gamora's whipping boy. <laughs> So, the previous Guardians movie had a lot of interesting backstory to Nebula and Gamora's childhood and how, you know, they were raised fighting each other and 
Gamora's quest for survival got in the way of her just being a sister to Nebula. It was heartbreaking, for sure, seeing Nebula being tortured like that. And upon revealing that Gamora knew exactly where the stone was. And that she would now have to take him to the stone to get Nebula's freedom. So then we get to that scene. Yes, that scene. And... You see, I can't remember if Thanos was actually shedding a tear or two, but you could see the pain on his face and you could see... He, he shed tears for sure. You could see, like, this is the the final thing that he has to sacrifice. You know, he's he's lost his planet, he's lost his people, he's lost everything except his adopted daughter, Gamora. You could see the look of realization on his face when he was told that he had to sacrifice the one thing he loved and Gamora's being all glum and smug. She's saying, haha, you don't love anything. Yeah. So you don't get the stone. And then he turns to her and he looks at her with a tear rolling down his face and he says, well, he doesn't say anything, does he? He just sort of grabs her arm and throws her in with a little monologue. I saw it coming. I don't know about you. Yeah, I kind of saw it coming. Like, you know, Gamora was downplaying Thanos's love for her because I don't know if it was like Stockholm Syndrome or what, but he, she didn't want to believe that this undeniably evil person had so much love for her. And it was brilliantly done. Yeah, it was phenomenal. And then he turns to her and the whole thing is in slow motion. The music welled. So, basically, they're on this planet. This is where the stone is. This is where she's memorized this in her head. They go to the top of the mountain where it's meant to be. And the Red Skull, who's been basically banished by the stone for his greed to this top of the mountain to be the guardian of the stone. And he tells Thanos, you need to sacrifice something you love in order to get this stone. Because it's... What what stone was it? It's the soul stone. The soul stone. You need to sacrifice... It's basically like sacrificing a piece of your soul. And the realization on his face when he realizes that he needs to sacrifice Gamora was was pretty powerful. And he grabs her by the arm in slow motion and he throws her off the edge of the cliff. And she falls down to the bottom of the hole, dead. Dead as a doornail. And it was sad. It was sad for sure. It was incredibly moving. And definitely the most moving scene that they've ever had with an evil guy in Marvel... And it showed that Thanos wasn't going to pull any punches. It showed that he was going to stop at nothing to achieve his He was serious about it. Yeah. So, now he's got four stones. He has two left to go, and they're both on Earth. Explain to me exactly where these stones are. Well, the first one is the little pendant that Doctor Strange has. So, he has the time stone. And then Vision, I believe, has the... The mind stone. The mind stone. Yeah. He was captured. He was captured. He was captured by the henchman. Yes. What did you think of that henchman? Oh, he, he was like a, a cut-rate Voldemort. <laughs> the, the no-nose guy. Yeah. He was extremely powerful and, yeah. and he, was, he was a very effective henchman, but like I couldn't take him seriously because of what he looked like. The other Thanos cronies were so lame, but this guy was pretty cool. The action scenes that they had with him were incredibly powerful. Seeing Iron Man, Spider-Man, him, and Doctor Strange fighting each other was awesome. It was a lot of fun to watch in that first act of the film. Yeah. And he gets captured. Iron Man and Spider-Man, you know, try to rescue him and they get dragged up into space. 
a very good father-son relationship with Spider-Man there again with Iron Man, where he says, you know, you said get him, so I'm trying to get him. And he's like, you idiot, you're going up into the atmosphere. There's no oxygen up here. <laughs> and then, of course, he gives him the crazy new Spider-Man suit, which was pretty cool. Yeah. Sorry? It was meant to only protect him, but he decided to stay around and basically we've got now doctor strange iron man and spider-man all on the same ship and they run into nebula and they're all in the same ship and they're going to titan they land their ship on titan very badly they crash land and then they're sort of waiting i think yeah because the spaceship's course was set to titan because that was where thanos was going to pick them up and yeah there was the rendezvous point yeah exactly and they're, they're basically waiting there. They run into the Guardians of the Galaxy, have a bit of a fight, and they sort of meet up and put together a plan. And this is where you see Doctor Strange... Hovering. Yeah. He's leveraging the power of the Time Stone to look into all of the potential futures. And then he reveals that they only have a 1 in 14,605,000 chance of coming out of this... This becomes important later in the film, but those odds weren't very good. No, no, it's like uh, C-3PO. You know, it's it's just one of those scenes, but it's it, it's like Chekhov's gun. They've planted that seed and they've said that this, this is the stakes we have. And so Doctor Strange knows what's going to happen. And then Thanos arrives. Yep. And battle ensues. Again, phenomenal battle. Really, really impressive, visually speaking. Oh, yeah. Seeing these characters fighting each other was a lot of fun. We got a lot of good, clean comedy, like Marvel comedy, stuff that makes you chuckle and some that makes you roll your eyes. But it was good. It hit all the strokes on the Marvel sort of action scenes. Spider-Man did really, really well. Thoughts on the new Iron Man suit, by the way? The nanotechnology? Yeah, I I like it. I mean, every movie has some kind of like technological development with Iron Man. Yeah, his suit changes in every single one. Yeah. I went back and I, I, I did a couple of YouTube clips in the first Iron Man movie and I was like, wow, this thing has changed a lot. <laughs> I take a couple of liberties with that. They were like, oh, well, he's a big technology giant. He's got to make the best suit. And it's basically uh, morphs around him and it changes at any given point. So if one part of it breaks, he can just build it in another place and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and it becomes a really effective weapon in this fight because... He's leveraging that ability to move the nanoparticles around. So he's taking bits off his suit when the fight starts to really come to a head. He's taking bits from his suit and turning it into weapons. It was a very cool scene. It was a very cool scene to see how all the technology in the world, the biggest technology giant, Iron Man, was struggling against Thanos. He was really struggling with the with the odds of the situation and the, the, the battle that ensued was, was pretty intense. And then we get to a point where... I don't know if you want to bring this up or not. Yeah, so it looks like they're going to overpower Thanos. You know, Mantis is controlling his mind and you've got all the characters restraining him while Iron Man and Spider-Man are trying to pull the Infinity Gauntlet off his hand. Which was the longest most ridiculous like it's a glove just pull it off but yeah they they try to pull it off and it was taking a while yeah and then you have peter quill or star lord star lord star lord man and starts beating on this guy trying to find out where gamora is yeah it's a sudden realization that gamora is dead when nebula says that 
Gamora's dead and he he loses it which I think the first time I watched it I I sort of I was like oh that's a bit silly that Quill was the one that ended up raging out but it does kind of make sense upon reflection because he just confessed his love to Gamora Gamora didn't come back where is Gamora why is Gamora <laughs> when is Gamora it sounds like a it sounds like ah oh, all these weird names it sounds like a riddle in Latin but yeah he's he's just letting his emotions get the best of him and the devastating part of that is that it means that Thanos basically gets a second wind and he's able to overpower everyone who's restraining him and it gets to the point where he manages to beat everyone up or essentially like throw them away and thanks to some heroic efforts by my boy Spider-Man they're all safe yep but then Iron Man is fighting Thanos one-on-one. and It's a one-on-one Iron Man-Thanos match. We've seen before, earlier on in the movie, that this doesn't go down well, even for the Hulk. Yeah. So it's a pretty tough battle. And Iron Man is giving it everything he's got. He's using the nanotechnology of his suit and he's making sort of spears and things out of it, trying to attack him. And he's losing bits and pieces because... Thanos is ripping pieces of Iron Man's suit and throwing it away, mm. you know. And it was a very good hand-to-hand combat battle. And then when it's resolved, it's it's done in such an incredible way because Thanos takes this huge spear that Iron Man's made from his suit and plunges it into his chest or abdomen. The whole cinema was very quiet. There was a couple of gasps, but you could have heard a pin drop in the cinema that we were in. I was shocked. I was genuinely shocked. Like I said before, I came into this movie not wanting to care and I cared. And I was genuinely upset when that spear hit him. Yeah, cause well, it, it's unprecedented. This guy's a big part of the cinematic universe. He's like the, the central person in it. And Thanos has just stabbed him and he's standing over this guy. He started the Avengers, you know. <laughs> Ever since the first cutscenes where where Tony Stark shows up on the general's doorstep after the first Hulk movie and he says, you idiots with your super soldier program, <laughs> you know, technology's where it's at, you know, and that, that harkens back to the super soldier program being started with Steve Rogers and how that eventually changed and eventually became Hulk. Iron Man is the catalyst of the Avengers, him and S.H.I.E.L.D. He was the number one guy that all got us invested in in the franchise and to see him stabbed in the gut like that was just ah uh, was difficult to watch what do you think about what happened next when dr strange intervened in the fight this this becomes important dr strange then tells thanos to let him go and he hands over the time stone to thanos obviously you're like oh, we don't negotiate with terrorists like you're thinking that kind of mentality but of course it, it becomes important at that sort of a later part in the film he had seen all the futures and there's a scene which we'll get back to a little bit later that explains why dr strange gave the stone over and this is basically put the power of time in the hand of thanos he'd basically he's got another stone and he lets go of Iron Man, drops him into the dirt, and Iron Man lives. He closes over his wound, and I was I was kind of annoyed, to be honest. I was like, ugh, another fake-out death, you know? Like, I was like, ah, oh, it's a bit silly. That's a bit Marvel. 
Marvel with their fake out deaths. Yeah, of course. But at first I thought that Stark was going to die. Like, this is a pretty big wound. Like, he's just been stabbed all the way through with this big-ass spear. But at the same time, you know, this guy obviously has a lot of technology and he has, a, you know, a, a mind to say, okay, this is probably going to happen. I'm going to make up some kind of thing to sort of, you know, provide a field dressing for my, you know, wound or whatever. So I thought, all right, that's that's fair enough. And it could also lead into getting into the more comic book world of this. The the nanobot suit in the comic books was originally meant to be part of the extremist Iron Man 3 movie sort of style of thing where the suit is actually part of Tony Stark's blood. The nanobots are actually in his blood and that's that's how he controls them. So it could lead into that because he's just been stabbed all the way through by these nanobots. Right. You're sort of getting this, like, healing ability or something like that. Yeah, but I think we we might be getting a bit ahead of ourselves there. But I think that it's a bit of a cop-out, but, you know, it, it's Marvel. They're not just going to, like, have Tony die in the dirt after the bad guys left. Yeah. They weren't gonna. They weren't gonna Game of Thrones him. <laughs> the thing is, like, I was genuinely upset by that. Like, I was affected by the death for sure that he got. Uh, sorry, that he got stabbed, and I thought he was gonna die, and then he didn't. And then I was like, Marvel, <laughs> silly Marvel, always making me do these fake out death things. Yeah, but then as all this has been going on, there's been another battle waging. Yeah, let's get to that. So. First of all, let's get to Thor. We're going through these storylines sort of chronologically, but they're all happening at the same time and they're all intertwined. And towards the middle of the movie, it's a bit hard to keep track of them, but they all come together pretty well towards the end of the movie. But we start off with Thor. He's basically going to this star where Mjolnir was forged and he's going to try and reforge an ultimate weapon to hone his lightning. And he gets to the star, <laughs> the heart of the dying star, and it's and it's out. It's, it's dead. <laughs> yeah, because Thanos has already been there and he's yeah. forged his infinity glove there. And that that was kind of a reveal, wasn't it? I don't think anyone knew really where the gauntlet had come from. No. Because they were like, oh, this is where the Infinity Gauntlet was formed. And then in repayment for that, he would allow one of the forges to live. And then obviously destroyed the rest of it. That sort of brought it a little bit home for me. It sort of intertwined the universes together a little bit, which I think was pretty good. What did you think about the lone blacksmith that was left? I think the whole cinema laughed as soon as they saw (laughs) him. It was a great reveal. So, who who played the... Uh... So, it was Peter Dinklage, who's, you know, he's a dwarf. He's a relatively short guy, and he's known for playing parts like that. And so, you know, he was a dwarf at this Heart of the Star, who's the galaxy's best blacksmith. It's He's really great, but, you know, he's like 30 feet tall. He's the world's biggest dwarf. It was great. It was so weird, like, seeing him and be like, oh, that's silly. (laughs) Anyway, it was funny. It was genuinely funny. But I did roll my eyes quite a lot. It was still that first two acts of the movie where I was like, why am I here? Why am I watching this movie? Why are they putting in Peter Dinklage in here? This is so stupid. You know, it was a great sort of sequence of him putting together this weapon and, you know, getting the heart of the neutron star relit and getting the blacksmith forges 
fixed. I find it a little contrived that Thor and Rocket managed to get the star ignited again using a little escape pod. Yeah, it was it was pretty tenuous at best that they managed to find their way to this star just in an escape pod. But again, they were a little bit self-aware. They were like, how are we going to get this thing started? He's like, well, I'll get it started. And he like, and it's kind of a comical scene. Yeah, I mean, it gets even more absurd when like the, the star, I don't know, aperture thing closes again. And he's like, oh, I've got to manually hold it open. Did you have to put that in? Yeah. I mean, you could just get like a, I don't know, like a steering lock or something and like tie the two ends together or something. Just get like a, a really big surgery stint. You know, those ones that hold the body open while doctors are doing surgery. <laughs> They're on a forging planet star thing. They've got to have some scrap metal lying oh, around. sure. Stick a hunk of metal in it to hold it open. Tony Stark put this suit together in a cave with a box of scraps. <laughs> oh, but then they had to have... Root stick his arm into the, th- the hammer because Thor has been hit by a dying star and he's dying. Oh, Thor's dying. Oh, he's on the floor and we have to give him the hammer so that he doesn't die. Yeah, but it's an axe now. Yeah, it's it's a, a hammer axe thing. And they were like, oh, we, we need the handle. Where's the handle? And he got two bits of metal sitting on the floor and Groot sticks out his hand and, and cuts off a bit of his arm to make the handle. And I was like, oh. Yeah, but it worked. It saved his life, didn't it? Yeah. I have some questions about that uh, towards the end of the movie, but we'll, we'll get to that in a sec. So, Thor's now got his weapon, and it's so powerful that it can summon the Bifrost. So, he can literally teleport between worlds now. We'll get back to him in a sec. Let's jump across to one of the other dozen or so storylines that are throughout this movie. Now, we've got the second battle on Earth, and that's in Wakanda. And... You were telling me before we recorded this podcast that you didn't know why people were really here in Wakanda. Yeah, I was like, why are they going to Wakanda? This seems silly to me. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that they really did poorly. Like, they've managed to sort of shoehorn in all the exposition quite well to this point. But this little situation where they have to go to Wakanda to get the Vision's Infinity Stone out of his head. Yeah. That would have been pretty well explained in Black Panther because Black Panther's sister is this incredible scientist. Yeah. And that's that's a pretty key part of the movie. That's why, you know, T'Challa has this kick-ass suit because it's made by his sister. So, you know, that's something that they failed to explain a little bit. Yeah, I was sort of thinking that they were giving this role to a minor character because they wanted to have the battle in Wakanda. But if I would have watched Black Panther, I would have realized, okay, she's a scientist. They need to find some way to take the stone out of Vision's head while preserving his life. She was the only person in the world who was sort of able to do it. And also an ally of the event. Yeah, and in a very fortified place. And I I thought it was, having had all that context surrounding it, because I've watched all the movies, it was a really well-established scene with all the context. And it was a really great way to get into Wakanda and to get the Black Panther and all of, like, the Wakanda soldiers into this movie, because this is where they were going to have their final stand. It worked to their convenience. They wanted to have the battle on Wakanda because it's this isolated and highly fortified area. So, it makes sense, you know, like you got an army of invading crazy aliens. So, we need somewhere to, for them to make their last stand and it it worked well. What did you think when the battle started to break out? I got the feeling that the movie was going to end there. 
I got the feeling that, okay, they're building up to this final climactic scene. I didn't like the fact that half the Avengers was still trapped in space. But again, I think what they're doing there is they're legitimizing the bridge between Tony and Steve Rogers. They were saying, oh, these characters, we're not going to see them getting along yet. Geographically separated, you've got half the Avengers on Earth, half the Avengers in space. And I was expecting them. I was like, when are they going to bring the other Avengers back down to Earth? And if they're going to do it, are they going to do it in Wakanda? Okay, that makes sense. So I'm waiting, waiting, waiting for the for the Avengers to join in Wakanda. Waiting, waiting, waiting. Oh, when's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? It's going to happen any second now. Yeah, the battle looks like it's going to be lost. You know, these these people are being pretty beaten up by these like insect-like creatures that look like WWE wrestlers. Yeah. And the Wakandans have this giant force field shield that around their entire country and the aliens can't get through it but a lot of them force their way through it and end up getting decapitated and bisected in two and a lot of these things but they they start breaking through the visuals are amazing yeah and it was it was a really well done fight however i didn't like how often they cut away from it they sort of had to because like the movie is just having all these plates spinning on sticks yeah. and they're trying to juggle them all and so they don't lose one of them, they've got to go back and spin it up again. So they sort of had to do that. But at the same time, we never really had like a defining, like that's got the whole undivided attention except towards the end. I 100% agree. And that that really irritated me when you had Thor with his new axe, which was called Stormbreaker, he returned to Earth. Yeah, so it's going pretty badly for them. You got you got very low level Avengers that are on Earth. You got the Wakandan army doing a majority of the fighting, and then you've got you know Steve Rogers. You got Black. Uh, so you got Captain America. You got Black Panther. You've got Hulk, but he's in his suit because he can't Hulk out. You got Tasha Black Widow. You've got Scarlet Witch, but she's not She's not even present. She's not even on the battlefield. So, she's the most powerful character there. She's not even on the battlefield. No, she's standing guard with the Vision. Yeah, so her and Vision, who are the most powerful characters that they have, are not fighting at all. And then you've got Falcon sort of above head, trying to bomb everyone and trying to help out as much as he can. But they're losing. They're doing really, really badly. And then the battle turns when the Guardians and Thor come down to Earth. Not all the Guardians, just Rocket and Groot. They come down to Earth and they they start kicking ass and taking names. You know, you got you got to see Thor's axe in action. He's doing really really well, and they're they're making a little bit of progress. They're actually starting to win a little bit. Yeah, I was like, hell yeah, this is yeah. such a good scene. And I was waiting. Okay, we've got these three separate storylines. Two of them have joined. Awesome. When's the third one gonna join? That's what I was thinking. And of course, they had to keep cutting back to them. They had to keep cutting back to Iron Man and Doctor Strange and Spider-Man because they were still on this, like, other planet. And we're still not getting the full brunt of the battle that's going on in Wakanda in the same way that the first Avengers movie had that giant battle sequence at the end of the movie. That's what we needed in this film when we didn't get it. No, but maybe they're saving it for the next Avengers movie. It seems as though they're going to be pretty much intertwined. So, we cut away from that battle sort of shortly after Thor is, like, kicking ass and taking names. And you go back to Titan where this whole altercation happens and Thanos gets the time stone. And then you go back to Earth and somehow they're losing again. They didn't explain that again. If we had a battle sequence, we could have seen that happening. Maybe they cut away from it just so they could 
shoehorn that in conspiracy theory hashtag (laughs) it was good and then you had thanos join the battle and that's that's sort of when the tide starts to turn again yeah that's when stuff got real so one note i want to harp on on again about my hatred of disney and marvel obligatory female fight oh yes you had to have all the females fight every female character was in a ditch together Fighting with each other and for each other. You had the main female villain, which was the um, Thanos crony, whatever her name is. I don't even know. Who cares? (laughs) And she's taken down Scarlet Witch because Scarlet Witch has finally joined the battle because she's this big, powerful character. And they're like, oh, we got her. Let's get her. You know, because they know she's important. And then (laughs) out jumps... Okoye? You know, she's like, you're all alone. And out jumps Black Widow. And she's like, she's not alone. And you got these four like little like female side characters fighting each other, and it was it just felt very like you know overly shoehorned progressive. It was like oh we got to have development of these female characters. Like we already had strong female characters; they were like doing really really well in their own right, and it just felt a little like oh come on Marvel. It was really you really have to, and it was very then like it. It contributed to things starting to really fall apart because Scarlet Witch isn't guarding Vision. So, they can just go and, like, take Vision and... They were there the whole time. They were just waiting for Scarlet Witch to leave. Exactly. And now that Vision's starting to be attacked, he can't can't be there to try and have the the stone taken out of his forehead. So, he's got to fight. He's got to join the battle now. And that's the last thing that they wanted. I did want to kind of mention lack of hulking out. What thoughts? Well, it ties back to Ragnarok. It was a big point in the movie where... Bruce Banner and Hulk were sort of at at odds with each other. Yeah, there was really big development with Hulk in that movie because, like, obviously we haven't seen him since the end of Age of Ultron where he flies away in the Quinjet and somehow he, like, flies away to this, like, junk planet. Scrap-collecting planet. Yeah, these terrestrial airplanes that they've got in these movies can, like, fly into outer space or whatever. And they're apparently in... They're not in the galaxy. They're between galaxies, which is where all the homeless people end up. Yeah. (laughs) Which I thought was like, oh, come on. It was a bit ridiculous. (laughs) It's all the black market people and all the, like, gamblers and, like, they're doing, like, the space version of cockfighting. (laughs) It's, like, gladiatorial games. Yeah, but that's the thing. Like, he'd been the Hulk for for two years. And he managed to, like, return to normal because he heard, like, Natasha's voice. And basically, he didn't want to hulk out again because he wasn't sure if he could return to Bruce Banner. And then, like, he sort of had to at the end of Ragnarok. And then he gets, like, you know, his ass kicked at the start of the movie. He gets beaten up at the start of the movie. Thrown back to Earth into Doctor Strange's house, which is interesting. I don't know why they put him in Doctor Strange's house. They had to, like, throw them together somehow. Was he bifrosted away? Yeah, yeah, he was. I think... Heimdall bifrosted him away. Okay, so if Heimdall did it, that makes sense because Heimdall can see everything. It makes sense to send him to where the next Infinity Stone is to warn Doctor Strange. That kind of makes sense, but they didn't explain no, it. No, but th- there's no time to explain. Just get into the fighting. Yeah, get him Get him to Doctor Strange's house. Yeah, and so, like, it, it became a real, like, you know, funny point of this movie that, you know, the Hulk didn't want to fight. Because Bruce is trying to, like, suppress him or, like, have him essentially on demand. 
Which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, and it meant that he just, like, took Tony's Hulkbuster armor and got to fight in that. <laughs> it is Hulk-like. Yeah. And he makes a point. He's like, oh, this this suit beat Hulk. It's more powerful than Hulk. And everyone's like, yeah, but we want Hulk. Mm. <laughs> I did like the throwaway line where Bruce is like, listen, Hulk, buddy, I know you like coming and making these dramatic last-minute entrances, but I could really use you right now. I like that because it's it's a feature of every single movie Hulk's in. He does this last minute Hulk out right at the end of the movie or right when he's needed. So it's good to see them being again self-aware. Yeah. But what do you think of sort of the final little section of the battle between Thanos, Scarlet Witch and Vision? We're in the end game here. Drawing it to a close. I think I felt that... I wasn't 100% invested yet. I thought, like, I, it was getting a bit tense and I wanted to see the characters succeed. But I thought there'll be some sort of Deus Ex Machina or they'll be able to get Iron Man back to Earth or something like that. Something will eventually turn the tide in their favor. But he rips through them. All the Avengers sort of figure out that Thanos is back on Earth and they attack him. So you got Iron Man attacks him. Bucky attacks him. I think even Falcon attacks him. Yeah. Everyone's hoeing into this guy because they're like, we can't let this guy win he's got five of the stones if he gets to the vision if he gets that final stone he's won and we're all lost so you have scarlet witch and vision um in the earlier part of the movie they discussed that she should just kill him because she has a special connection with him she should just destroy him and destroy the stone so they're standing in front of each other and Thanos is approaching, just taking out Avengers left, right, and center, taking out Hulk, taking out Captain America, and not doing very well. And they have this emotional, intense, intense moment where she's crying and she she decides that she's going to have to kill Vision. Again, it's a huge sacrifice in order to be victorious, in order to save the planet, save the galaxy. Yeah. And... She finally realizes it. So she starts having to rip the stone out of his head and destroy it with her powers. Yeah, it was it was very sad. She sort of rips the stone out and destroys him. And he explodes and there's this massive ricochet and it looks like it's all over. She's devastated. She's on the floor. She's crying, you know. Thanos has turned this horrible, dead, sort of dark grey. And he walks straight up to her and he... And he consoles her he says i know it's sacrifice i've had to sacrifice too he doesn't seem devastated at all he doesn't care and this is where the final act of the film closes because he sort of enacts the time stone reverses time a few minutes and gets the stone undestroyed from vision's head kills vision vision becomes this gray awful yuck color with no life in him, collapses to the ground, and he's now got the last stone, and he puts it into his glove. And everyone stops, and it's just total disbelief, because here, Thanos has won. He's got everything that he's been fighting for so long to achieve. It was shocking, for sure, to see him die like that, and a bunch of the other other characters converge on the scene, realizing that, Vision is dead. They see his, like, limp body there. It's very sad. It's quite emotional. But the day is not yet won because... Was there another battle after that? Or was it basically just Thor? 
attacking. Yeah, Thor jumps in and he attacks with his new axe and he brings the axe into Thanos' chest. And we're talking like a big attack. Yeah. Like Thor is descending with his eyes glowing, lightning all around him, this glowing axe beating down from the heavens and he throws it straight into Thanos's chest like Thanos cannot stop it and it goes straight into Thanos's chest and Thanos starts like you know, coughing up blood and he's dying yeah it looks like he's done as he gets stabbed he has a flashback and we think he's like he's in this like heavenly realm and he's like completely I think he goes back to that like planet where Gamora died but it's like it's like otherworldly it's like filled with water and stuff like that and all he sees is Gamora at this like shrine from a previous memory and she says, did you get what you wanted? And he says, yes, I did. I've accomplished my goal. And she says, at what cost? And that's where it ends. And it, he comes out of this heavenly realm, back to reality. And he looks up at Thor. And he says, you should have aimed for the head. And then he does, They call this is what they're calling it. If you watched any other reviews, they're calling it the infamous snap. It's a call back to an early part of the movie where Thanos is describing his motivations. And he says, I would just want to be able to accomplish my goals by snapping my fingers and killing half the universe. Mm. And he snaps his fingers. And then he disappears. Just like that. And right after the snap, you see... I think the flashback happens right after the snap. Mm. And then when they come back from the flashback, his gauntlet is all broken. It's, it's like rusty and old. And the jewels are glowing less brightly. And it's melting in his hands. The, the gauntlet itself has been sort of half destroyed by his action which is kind of a metaphor for what happens next, that the, the whole universe has been half destroyed. Yeah, but we don't know it yet. Yeah, we're, we're not aware yet. Because after that happens, Thanos disappears and everyone's looking around at each other going, what, what just happened? Yeah. Where's he gone? Is it over? What, what happens? And then, oh. You start to basically see... Who was the first character we see? Was it Bucky? Yeah, so the frame turns to Bucky and he's looking at Cap and he starts to... Feel ill. Yeah, and then he starts to fade away into into ash in the wind. And there's no there's no redemption moment. There's no I'm bleeding on the ground from a movie. You know, you got a movie where like a, a main character dies or a side character dies. You got like, oh, I've like been shot and tell my mother I love her. None no, of that. He just fades away into blackness. Yeah, and it's all over in three seconds. Yeah, like he's halfway through a sentence. He's saying, you know, Steve, I don't feel so cool. God. Yeah. You know? And then I think it was... Do you have the character deaths in yeah. order? Yeah. The next one was Black Panther. The camera work. Oh. I have a point on this camera work. They're following Black Panther and you can just predict what's going to happen. You're like, damn it. He's going after Okoye and he's like trying to help her out of the ditch because she's injured. You know, he's trying to help and he says, come with me. We're not going to die here today. And the camera follows him and you're the camera is setting you up to think that she's going to fade away as he grabs her hand. As the camera turns, it focuses on her face at the precise, perfect moment that he's reaching out, grabs her hand, and he fades away and dies. And her face turns to absolute shock and tragedy. And we're feeling the same thing she's, she's feeling. because the same we're expressions that everyone in this packed theater has. We were all expecting- That was brilliant camera work and brilliant storytelling because we were all expecting- 
damn, this is like really big for him because his his best like his second in command is gonna die, and then he dies, and you see her, and we're left with this gut punch. It was horrible. You could have heard a pin drop in the cinema. It was just quiet. There was no music in the background of the scene. It was just the sound of this gently floating away ash of these characters who were turning to ash. It was powerful. I mean, it's absolutely devastating. And at this point, I was in complete disbelief of what was happening. And I, it just, it never even occurred to me that this was half of the universe being destroyed at this point. I thought, oh no, there's, there's some people who are fading away to ash. What, it, what is happening it didn't even occur to me that Thanos has actually destroyed half the universe and this is a process of it happening. For me, I think the biggest shock was that half of our Avengers were going to die because when he says half the universe is going to die, you think, oh, well, that's tragic. But then it doesn't occur to you, oh, that means half the Avengers are going to die. half the people among us. It's not like half like the, the left in half the of the galaxy, galaxy is going to die and the right half is going to be fine. Yeah, it'll be random and disparate. And our characters aren't wearing plot armor in that no, point. No, no one is safe from this attack. Which we found out shortly after Black Panther. Yeah, you know, it goes back to where Thanos was and, and Groot's there with Thor. And Groot is, you know, it's everyone's favorite character. He's so adorable. And we see him fade away. With Rocket watching. Yeah. That's the hardest part, seeing... You know, the, these characters' best friends watching their characters fade away to nothing. And then there's the next one. You know, as Vision's lying on the ground. You know, this grey husk of, of whatever Vision was made of. You see Scarlet Witch. Yeah. You know, she's fought so hard to try and defeat Thanos. And she failed. She failed. Yeah. And... After all of that, she fades away to nothing. Is that all for Earth? No, there's there's more. the The last one on Earth was Falcon. He's he's a kind of forgettable character, but at the same time, you know, it, it really rounds out a solid amount of, of heroes. They're dying. It's, yeah. it's this big impactful moment where you're like, side characters, main characters, they all die. What happened to Cap? He's still there. And then we cut to Titan, Thanos's former home world. I, for a split second, I had this feeling that they were safe because they weren't on Earth. And then I realized that it was the universe. And I was like, oh, don't tell me a bunch of these characters are going to die. I was like, thank goodness they're safe. But before anything happens, Tony looks to Doctor Strange and Doctor Strange looks at Tony and he says, oh, no, he doesn't say anything yet. First, who who dies? Yeah. So we go to Titan and, you know, all these characters... Just like on Earth, but probably for a little bit longer, they're just standing around in disbelief, sort of thinking, oh, how are we going to get home and and fight Thanos or whatever? And all of a sudden, out of the blue, Mantis fades. Yeah, she just disappears, followed soon by, I think, Drax. Yeah, Drax is next. And then, this was a pretty big gut punch, was Peter Quill. Yeah, Peter Quill had this, like, look of hopelessness in his eyes. He went from being this stoic, charismatic, cocky, arrogant dude, and then all of a sudden he's like, "Hey, man, I don't, I don't feel so good." And he's looking around, and he's, and he's just this look of 
sheer desperation and, and devastation on his face when he fades away. Then there's a little bit of a gap. You sort of reeling from these three characters' death in quick succession. You've had half of the Guardians of the Galaxy die. You've literally only got Rocket left. They're all dead. Yeah, we we see Doctor Strange and Tony Stark sort of looking incredulous at each other. You know, these are characters that have clashed pretty heavily over the course of the movie because they're both, you know, intelligent. They're both rather overconfident and they're seeing something that they can't overcome. But Doctor Strange saw this coming with the Time Stone. And so he says to Tony Stark, this was the only way. And then you start to realize that he'd seen in the future that there's 14 million whatever percent chance and the one time that they win this was the way and he said this is the only way he looks at tony and then he fades away to nothing uh, that one shocked me i was not expecting dr strange to die especially since he knew what was going to happen i was thinking that he would have to live because he would be able to use the time stone to bring people back or something like that and then he fades away it's like all hopelessness and then... This one hit you hardest. Oh, this one killed me, man. I don't even want to talk about it. Tom Holland, the best Spider-Man <laughs> in the world. This young kid who we've seen develop this like strong relationship with Tony Stark. And I was like, oh, thank goodness they're not going to kill Spider-Man. Because Spider-Man's got his own movie coming out. I was like, thank goodness they're not going to kill Spider-Man. And then Spider-Man says, Mr. Stark, I don't feel so well. Mr. Stark, I don't feel good. And he collapses into Tony's arms and cries. And says, I don't want to go, I don't want to go, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. And Iron Man yeah. is sh- shushing him, saying, it's okay, it's okay. And flops to the ground and and Spider-Man fades away. And it's a particular gut punch for us as the audience, as well as Tony Stark. This is his kid, like an, ad- an adopted son almost. Took him under his wing, he'd made him an Avenger. Yeah, I cried. I, I, I shed a tear for sure in the movie. Anything makes me cry for sure. Like, I'm, I'm, I'll am i blubber at anything. So, take that with a, with a grain of salt. But, yeah, that, that, that killed me. Oh, it was by far the most emotional scene of the entire movie. Because he's a high school kid. He's, like, 16 years old. And he's somehow got caught up in this, like, interstellar war. And, you know, he's... he's really cocky he wants to try and help prove himself and all of a sudden you know you see this kid who's got in over his head and he doesn't want to die teenagers at the beginning of his life he's got so much ahead of him yeah this is not what he signed up for and his desperate attempts to you know i don't want to die i don't want to die i don't want to go i don't want to go it ripped me apart i've never seen some, like there were so many gasps in the audience because they thought he was safe. They really thought he was safe. And then it was a really intense character that we all loved that he was so innocent. He was so he was cracking jokes and he was like he was a character that everyone liked. Every other character in in the universe sort of has, you know, oh, that character's a bit silly and this character's a bit contrived. But Spider-Man was new to the franchise. He'd been introduced very, very well in Civil Civil War. Then he got his own movie, and he did really well in that movie, and it was cool to see this, like, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man dealing with friendly neighborhood Spider-Man things. It wasn't all about the end of the world. There was some guy stealing weapons, and I gotta get the guy who's stealing the weapons. Very small-time crime, very, like, personal, meaningful relationships. 
this father relationship. He's lost his Uncle Ben and he's building this father relationship with Tony Stark. He's a brilliant actor. He's a likable kid. And he fades into nothingness saying, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. In Tony Stark's arms. Killed me, man. I was... I I couldn't handle it. Uh Just the the shot of, like, you know, Tony Stark's grabbing Spider-Man by his hand and trying to say, it's okay, it's okay. And he's still trying to, like, grab at the ashes of Spider-Man as he's fading. He's holding on to him, trying to grip him, trying to save him. And he fades into nothing. And the only people left on that planet is Nebula and Tony Stark in isolation on Titan. And the movie sort of ends. You sort of go to this pristine village on a mountaintop cottage. And Thanos appears there. And he sort of sits on the porch during sunset. And, yeah, he's he's done. Small smile crosses his face. Sense of accomplishment. But a reluctant smile. It's more of relief. It's, it's not quite happiness. It's more like a sort of a peace. But a peace that has happened with immense sacrifice he knows the weight of what he's done but in his mind he's succeeded and that's where the movie ends the movie ends everyone's waiting in the cinema our cinema we were sitting there waiting what's gonna happen next how are they gonna end the movie and it ends and everyone was just silent i've never you know i've been to a few movie premieres and everyone's been like oh hell yeah you know this is a great movie and all that but I, I've never been in a movie where, when it ends, it's just, you could hear a pin drop. Yeah, it was went, so silent. Like, we went there on opening night. In IMAX, large cinema. Yeah, it was packed. There were hundreds of people there, and they were all just staring at, at the black screen with the credits rolling, just in disbelief. Not a single person got up from their seats to leave. They were in shock and disbelief. Some people were, like, texting. Some people were, like, chattering a little bit as the credits rolled, thinking, what's going to happen next? Is there going to be a post-credits scene? We were just in disbelief that the movie was over. We're in complete disbelief that the movie was over. Yeah, you said to me that you thought that was the end of the second act. Yeah, seriously. I sat down and I was like, I thought that was the second act. I thought we still had, like, half an hour to go. I was devastated. Absolutely devastated. Even after all that, they didn't even give us a, a mid-roll credit scene. <laughs> no. What we got was, spoiler alert, people. Seriously, if you've listened to the rest of this and you're not going to see the movie and you, you want to stay fresh, please, you got to watch the credit scene, the post-credit scene. It, it does do a little bit of an explainer. If anyone was sort of hoping for some hope, basically that's what the end credit scene yeah, it, it's also, you know, another sucker punch while we're down. Yeah, yeah. yeah we get this sort of cold open with the voices talking you know someone's driving along a street new york city yeah yeah. i think it is and we we find out you know there's like a a car crash and you know there's sort of you can hear that things are happening outside of the car that isn't what would normally happen in a city you know there's people screaming and stuff like that so the characters get out of the car and it's maria hill and nick fury are two S.H.I.E.L.D. agents that disappeared at the end of Avengers. Yeah, and they're all, like, they're looking around them as though, what's what's happening? They were talking about trying to locate Tony Stark after the the invasion of New York, and they can't find him. And, and so this is, this is bizarre what's happening. They turn behind them, and there's a helicopter crashing into a building. 
people panicking. There's driverless cars. It's just these overturned like uh, car accidents where people are like, oh, are the drivers okay? And they're like, they're not in yeah. there. And then Nick Fury turns to Maria Hill and she starts fading. Yeah, that was pretty, that was pretty horrible yeah. to watch. Uh, and so Fury was like, oh no, some, something bad is happening. And he, he's running back to his car, fumbling in his jacket for something. And he, he pulls it out just as he's about to fade and we we don't know what it is yet he's like holding it up we can't see exactly what it is and he starts fading and he's like mother f-. yeah they got that samuel l jackson uh classic line in which yeah. kind of made people chuckle a little i really bit. enjoyed that and it was a very very good pg way of throwing that in there. <laughs> yeah but uh yeah then you know the the camera turns to this little device that um that Fury was holding. And it's revealed to be a 90s beeper. Yeah, yeah. He was summoning someone and the logo pops up on the screen and it's Captain Marvel. Yeah, it's Captain Marvel's um, logo. And we're thinking this is like a pretty good setup for the next film. Yeah, all hope is not quite lost. I mean, we've lost, you know, a huge amount of people, but there is hope. We're probably going to end it there. This movie... I think we, we need to talk about in isolation. We also do need to talk about in terms of the broader scope of superhero movies and also the broader scope of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and its conglomeration. So there's more discussion to be had there, certainly on the next episode for sure. But yeah. don't expect a very long, drawn-out one like we did in this one. No, we're not going to go through things frame by frame. We'll, we'll touch on a few things like where this universe might be headed or... This is not a movie review podcast by any no, means we're definitely not roger ebert <laughs> so we sort of decided to touch on this because it does blend a little bit into what me and patrick are interested in we're interested in the world of media and we're interested in the world of sort of creation and art and that kind of thing in film so this is sort of a it's a good topic for us to get into but yeah. we're not going to be a movie review podcast by any oh, means. definitely not but you know this this movie is it's an experience and I think it's like an experience that you can only really get the gravity of it just once and, you know, we really were kind of shaken by it. It's it's an ambitious project. It's a 10-year project in the works. To their utmost credit, they did a fantastic film. They, they took on criticisms that they were given up for lack of stakes in all the rest of their movies and they, and they raised the stakes. It was a phenomenal movie. Please go see it. It was really good. Even if you're not a fan of superhero movies, it's it's very good. Yeah, I mean, you know, IMDb doesn't lie when it says that it's a 9.1 out of 10. I don't <laughs> think any superhero movie's got a score that high yet. Maybe Dark Knight. Oh, yeah, that was a pretty good one. Not a traditional superhero movie. But yeah, yeah, I mean, you've got to go see this movie. It's a whole experience in and of itself. But if you haven't seen this movie and you've listened to this whole podcast... Shame on you. 